Well, today in John chapter 17, the gospel lesson, Jesus' discourse, this long upper room teaching with the disciples, has been concluded. And we come to what some have called the Holy of Holies. Not only of the Gospels, but of all of Scripture. Right? John 17 is a lengthy and an intimate prayer from the Son to His Father. Sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we are given this grand privilege of eavesdropping on it. There's nothing like this in Scripture. It's singular and unique. And there's a unique kind of intensity here. The, uh, the English writer Samuel Johnson famously said, nothing so focuses the mind as an imminent prospect of a hanging. Jesus is facing a hanging. And thus we have here his deepest, most focused, most intimate concerns. And we have them at length. One 19th century commentator says, No attempt, no attempt to describe the prayer can give a just idea of its sublimity, its pathos, its touching yet exalted character, at once both tender and full of triumphant expectation. It's been a beloved passage down through the centuries. In the, in the time of the Reformation, the Lutheran reformer Philip Melanchthon said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. In that same era, the Scottish reformer John Knox, dying in 1572, asked his wife to open the Bible to this chapter, to John 17, and to read it to him on his deathbed. Same time again, Oliver Cromwell, his chaplain, his chaplain Cromwell's chaplain was a famous Puritan theologian named Thomas Manton. Thomas Manton wrote 45 sermons on John chapter 17. 45. I'm going to positively fly over the passage. <laughs> I hope to do four. The testimonies could be multiplied. They could be. But the point is clear. We are on holy ground here. And this is a place where thought falters and words fail us. The prayer moves from Jesus praying for himself to praying for his disciples to finally praying for all who will come to believe down through the ages. Ultimately, you are directly in view in this prayer. But today we're going to simply look at the Lord's petition for himself, for his glory. And so we'll make two points. They're on the back inside page of the bulletin. 
The glory and the gift. The glory and the gift. So first, the glory. This is John 17, verse 1. Jesus looks toward heaven and prays. You know, posture is important in prayer. And Jesus, his body, like his whole being, is now oriented toward heaven. Right? Toward his return to the Father. So he lifts up his eyes and he, and he, to the place where his prayer is directed. And the first word out of his mouth is Father. Father. Twenty-some times when Jesus prays, invariably, every time, he uses this address in prayer. And so for him, as for us now, God is most basically, right, most fundamentally, Father. J.I. Packer famously said, you can sort of gauge the temperature of the soul of the Christian." By how dear, you know, how intimate, how much fire there is for this word. Father. For calling God Father. God is eternally Father. It's important to see this. He's Father before He became Creator. Before He became Redeemer. And so Jesus, who is Son before He became Savior and Redeemer, the Eternal Son, He enjoys loving Communion with his Father from all eternity. And it's out of that intimacy, rooted in the eternal life of God, right, that Jesus here prays. Right, the root of Jesus' prayer is that face-to-face glory without beginning. And out of that, he now says, Father, the hour has Come. Right? It's hanging time. We've seen this hour a lot in John's Gospel. Way back in chapter 2. When he opens his ministry at the wedding of Cana. Mary says they're out of wine. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, he delays going up to the Feast of Tabernacles. He tells his brothers... You go. My hour is not at hand. They tried to arrest him in chapter 8, and John says they couldn't lay their hands on him because his hour was not yet. And then around chapter 12 in the gospel, things turn, and we learn the hour is, is really the hour of the cross, the hour of betrayal and desertion and scattering and loneliness. And then in Luke's gospel, when they come to arrest Jesus, You know what he says to them? He says to the marauding band that comes for him armed, this is your hour and the power of darkness. That's the hour that's come. And that hour of darkness is mysteriously and wondrously the hour of radiance and glory and light. And so Jesus prays this prayer rooted in the eternal life of the triune God, now on display before the world. That's what we're seeing here. The eternal intimacy and love and communion of the Father and the Son cracked open and placed in human language so you can listen to it. 
so you can listen to it. You know, the uh, Protestant reformer, Johannes Ockelampadius, a linguistic, uh, very little-known reformer, but he was an associate of the Reformed, he used to say that when you comb through the Scriptures, you see the face of God. And so when you hear these words, that's what you're looking at. And Jesus says, glorify, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you. Even in praying to be glorified, Jesus is not self-seeking. He prays for the Father to glorify him so that he might glorify the Father. Right, it's interesting, Jesus' priorities. In this hour, with all of its violence and its ugliness, he is sure that the Father will nevertheless clothe the Son in splendor or cover him with splendor, which is what the idea of glory here means. And he will do it so that the Son can then clothe the Father in splendor. Why does Jesus pray this way? Because this is simply what the Father and the Son have been doing from before the foundation of the world. The Father pours out His love on the Son. The Son returns it in this eternal communion of life and light and love and delight. And that communion in the Spirit is the everlasting glory, the splendor of the triune God. And we get this glimpse of it in our history as Jesus comes to the hour of darkness, the hour of glory. So that this sentence, these nine English words, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That gathers up, that is the summary Not only of this whole long prayer in John 17, but it's the essence of Jesus' whole prayer life. Why do we call this the essence of Jesus' prayer life? Because it's the essence of his everlasting relationship with the Father in the being of God. What happens in the Trinity doesn't stay in the Trinity. It gets cracked open and poured out. And so this glory, this covering over with splendor, is made manifest in the whole of Jesus' incarnate life. You see this in verse 4. Jesus says to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth. Again, he speaks in the past tense, as if his death and his triumph were already accomplished. I have brought you glory on earth. We were made... Right, our, our chief end, our supreme end, the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, famously tells us, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Jesus shows us this when at the end of His life, this is what He says. I have brought you glory on earth. Calvin says that it is for God above all things and not for ourselves, that we were created. We were created for God. And so this glory of God, 
as we see it in the life of Christ, it's not only our chief end, it's our supreme goal, our supreme motivation. Right? Radiance is your supreme end. Clothing God with the splendor that he's already clothed you with. And what's beautiful here is we see that Jesus is focused on this at the end of his life. In a very passionate, exclusive way. He's the only one then who without qualification, without exception, no exceptions, the only one who can on his deathbed, as the one who's the word of God incarnate, now about to become the word of God interred. Right? He's the only one who can say without qualification, I have brought you glory on the earth. When you and I say those words, hopefully on our deathbeds, there will be rivers of mercy that enable us to say them. This one says them in the strictest sense of the word. And how has he done that? The text says, by finishing the work you gave me to do. Meaning, by the whole course of his total obedience, his whole undefiled life, his obedience from birth even unto death, total lifelong obedience, which John emphasizes over and over in this gospel. It is that obedience which saves you. We are not saved merely by Jesus' death. We are saved by his birth and his infancy and his childhood and his young manhood and his carpentry work and his obedience to the Father throughout the whole of his public ministry. We desperately need this. I've mentioned the collection of prayers called the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayers. There's a prayer in there which I was reminded of from this text. And at a point in this prayer, it speaks of Christ's obedience. And it says this, Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his meekness, For my pride. His constancy. For my backslidings. His love. For my enmity. His fullness. For my emptiness. His faithfulness. For my treachery. His obedience. For my lawlessness. His glory. For my shame. His devotion. For my waywardness. His holy life for my unchaste ways. His righteousness for my dead works. His death for my life. From the moment he takes the form of a servant, Calvin says, he pays the price for your liberation. And without this total obedience, without this simple sentence, without Jesus being able to lift his eyes to the Father and say, I brought you glory on earth, the cross would be vain. It would be just another death of another sinner. 
Notice, notice two things about this God-glorifying obedience. First is, the first one is this. The work. He says, I finished the work that the Father gave him to do. So the Father gives the Son work to do. And understanding that work, like adhering to that work, and knowing like the boundaries of that work, and the scope of the work, and the range of the work, that's at the heart of Jesus' vocation. Right? He, he's, he's a craftsman in his father's shop, but then his public ministry he treats as a craftsman, a kind of work that he must perfect. He does not do the work he chooses. He has to do the work the father gives him. It's not like, humanly speaking, he didn't have options. He could have been a rabbi. Could have remained a carpenter. Could have gone into politics. There's always options. It's the same for us. There's always options. But the work that God gives, now it means enrichment. It means joy, for sure. But first it means limitations. And that's what it meant for Jesus. It means cutting out all the other possible career paths and options. And so Jesus has inscribed on his forehead, on his soul, two words, the work. You ought to do a lot of thinking about that in your own life. What's the inscription that's inscribed on my life? What's the work? The work the Father has given me to do. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the epitaph over his life. And that work, he says, again in advance, I have finished it. Starting stuff is really easy for us, isn't it? We're fantastic at starting things. But finishing stuff, that is really hard. People who finish stuff, they're very valued. Jesus finishes. And he ultimately finishes by gasping in agony. It is finished. Long before your call to this path of discipleship, he fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith, kept faith with the Father. And so he prays. Right? And the one who prays here to be glorified so that he might glorify the Father has already glorified the Father on earth. Now, there's one more thing about this glory. You see it in verse 5. It's a return to its eternal source. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world Began. So notice that this glory, this radiance, if you will, this mutual clothing with splendor of the Father and the Son, it is both the source of this prayer in verse 1, and it's the goal of this prayer in verse 5. Right? Everything proceeds out from God, everything returns back to the triune God. Everything issues forth from His glory, everything is summarized and brought back to His glory. And that's how Jesus thinks. And praise, and as it was for him, so it is for us. So one of the things we're taught by this prayer 
is that the Trinity, the threefold glory, right, the threefold radiance of God is the source and the goal of our prayer and our life and our work. I mean, we all know this, I think. I'm not saying anything new here. But the question is, is it a living, palpable, vital reality that the threefold radiance of God is the source and the goal of all our Christian thinking and speaking and reflection and doing? Or put another way, for Jesus, the triune life of God from which he came and to which he returns, that is his great pre-occupation. Meaning, he's occupied with it before all things and above all things. Right? You know when you say you're trying to talk to someone and you realize they're preoccupied? Well, Jesus is preoccupied with the triune life of God without, of course, being distracted from what's right in front of him. And so should we be. Thus, Jesus prays from glory to glory. In other words, at the beginning of his prayers is the triune glory of God. At the middle and at the end of his prayers is the triune glory of God. He prays in a kind of luminous divine circle. Right? For us, prayer always tends to reduce to a checklist of needs. Jesus is praying out of the divine glory, through the divine glory, back to the divine glory. From glory in heaven to glory manifest on earth to restored heavenly glory. And that's enough. And it has always been the passion of saints. Right? You look at Moses in Exodus 32 and 33 and 34. Moses had seen the plagues in Egypt. Many of them coming by his own hand. Then he sees the parting of the Red Sea. Then he sees the drowning of the Egyptian army. Then he sees fire and thunder and lightning and darkness shaking Sinai at the top as the law is given. But what he really wants comes into view in chapter 32 and 33 and 34 where he says to to the God of Israel, show me your glory. It's astonishing. Show me your glory. And that's what Paul says that you can taste even now. He says, we behold the Lord and we're transformed from glory to glory. That we can see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. So, this glorification of the Son and then His passion to glorify His Father, please get this, this is the ground, right, the foundation for the mission of the church. And that brings me to the second point here, the gift. So what I want you to get is that this glorification of the Son and then the Son clothing the Father with glory... It's out of that that the church's missionary life springs. So we saw this gift language already. We saw it because we heard this. We heard that the Father gave or gifted to the Son His work. In this chapter, ironically, it's chapter 17, but this language of gift is shot through Jesus' prayer. It occurs 17 times. 17 times in John 17, he refers to something being gifted or given or granted. So in verse 2, we read this. For you have granted or gifted him authority over all people. Again, the son's already seen as resurrected and as exalted. 
The glory that he prayed for in verse 1 becomes openly manifested in his resurrection and his exaltation. The Son is given or granted authority over all flesh. It's parallel, right? That language you should be familiar with. It's parallel to the Great Commission text in Matthew's Gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. This is just John's version of that. He has been given then, or gifted authority, why? Well, John tells us that he might give another gift. So you see this in verse 2. You have granted him authority over all flesh that he might give, there it is a second time, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. There's the gift idea three times In verse 2, Jesus is given sovereign authority over the nations for the express purpose of gathering his elect from every nation. You've given him authority over all flesh that he might give eternal life to those you've given to him. Early in the gospel, John calls him the savior of the world. And as the gospel unfolds, we see what this means. We saw it in chapter 6. You can see it in chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 15. You see it again here. Jesus dies for and shall surely gather and shall not lose one of his sheep. Sheep from Israel, chapter 11 says, and sheep from the children of God scattered abroad. Sheep from this sheepfold, Israel, and other sheep, he says. Sheep from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. All the sheep that have been given, notice they're already given, given to him by the Father. All of these scattered in the nations are gathered into the holy nation of the church. To them, he's been granted the authority over all flesh to give eternal life. This is why Jesus has authority. He has authority to gather his sheep, to give eternal life to them. This is what it means when he says, I give my flesh for the life of the world. Now, it's a scandal, I know, but the whole thought here is governed by election. By the notion that there's a specific, known, chosen people given from the Father to the Son. It's very beautiful. So you can see what's happening in verse 2. Put simply, it's this. Jesus is given authority that he might give eternal life to those given to him by the Father. This is the everlasting plan and purpose of the Father in Jesus Christ. And in this, the prayer of verse 1 is answered. The Father clothes the Son with splendor, and the Son glorifies the Father through the mission of the church in her proclamation of the gospel, in her gathering of the sheep of Jesus from the nations. So the heart then, the very soul, the chief motive of mission, is not the salvation of sinners. It is not. It is the glorification of the triune God. Through the salvation of sinners. 
There are no ends in the Christian life other than the triune God. Everything else is a means to an end. So how about putting it this way? Maybe you've never heard it put this way. What is Christian missionary work? What is Christian evangelism in the proclamation of the gospel? At its most profound level, it is how we participate in the glorified Son clothing His Father with glory. That's what it is. And when we lose that, right, we just sort of detach it. It just becomes another thing on the list of stuff we have to do. But that's not how Jesus thinks about it. He says, the Father's going to clothe me in glory. And I'm going to, in return, clothe the Father in splendor. How? Well, by gathering and giving eternal life to the ones the Father's given to me. So in verse 3, you can see that the eternal life that Jesus gives, he says, is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This never drops out of view in the prayer. Christ and the triune God. Or, if you will, the Holy Trinity seen through Jesus. That knowledge is salvation. That's another thing that I think maybe we, we, don't, we wouldn't normally articulate, right? What is salvation? Jesus says, here's what it is. It's knowledge of the triune God. It's about the topic of the whole prayer. That knowledge, notice, intimate and personal knowledge is in view here, is salvation. It is everlasting life. So that we want to be people who say that God himself, in his own being, is our salvation. So a couple things I want to say about this gift. Two, actually. I'm still under the second point. but First, for us Christians... Now, this is, it's plain. It's on the face of the text. But again, it needs to be said out loud. Eternal life is a kind of knowledge. Right? Christianity is, in this sense, a profoundly intellectual religion. It's not for intellectuals merely. It's not intellectual in the sense that it can't be made simple and understandable by, by people. But it's a deeply rational thing. Right? Jesus says, knowing the triune God and knowing Jesus Christ, who's been sent from the Father, that knowledge is eternal life. Right? Life is knowledge. Knowledge is life. Yes, not just head knowledge, not just pure cognition. Certainly not. But not less than that either. But right? it's curious I think, that Jesus frames the question of salvation as knowledge of the Holy Trinity. Man, Aristotle said this, right? Man intrinsically desires to know. Right? Human beings are knowing creatures. When we know one thing, we naturally want to know the cause of that thing. And so on until we come to want to know God. Ultimately, for Christians, we want to know God as the source of our joy and of our everlasting happiness. And so there's a profound, um, if you will, philosophical point that Jesus is making here. And it's that the world, full of its beauty and its many good things, but that all things, 
all good things and all nations at all time cannot fully satisfy the human heart or the human mind or the human intellect. Because we were made for this knowledge, intimate, personal, existential, you know, experienced, living, dynamic knowledge of the Holy Trinity. So that the stuff in the world is a sacrament. It's a taste, but we want to go on. It has its own dignity, of course, its own integrity, its own wonder, its own splendor. But anyone who knows their soul well enough knows, and long enough knows, that there are no created things or collection of created things that can satisfy the human soul. We were made for the infinite, for the transcendent, for the eternal. And there is no getting around the fact that there's a kind of mental, rational dimension to this. Knowing the triune God and Jesus Christ is eternal life. So the second thing to note here about this this gift is that when we talk about eternal life, we're not talking so much about duration, you know, like something that lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. We're talking about a kind of life, a quality of life. It's quality that's in view here. It's participation in the life of God. And so salvation is everlasting life, not so much because it endures, but because it is knowledge of the everlasting one. I think we've spoken of this in here before. But the way to think about this is, is I think, as follows. It's not as if God thought, okay, if people believe in my son, I want to give them a really spectacular gift. Right? What's the most spectacular gift I can give them? I'll tell you what. How about we just make them live forever? And that would be really, really cool. The logic is much more profound. God says, well, if I give them myself... If salvation is knowing the triune God, and I am the everlasting, ever-living one, then in the nature of the case, there can't be any other possible outcome or gift for, for Christian response to the gospel than eternal life, life without beginning or end in communion with the eternal one. So there's a deep logic to understanding what eternal life is. But we tend to think, we tend to bend this out, flatten it out into two dimensions, and just think of eternal life in pure duration terms. Right? But if you think in terms of communion with the Holy Trinity, then we're talking about a, a kind of quality of life. Okay. So, we have this life right now in this life. We have it. That's what Jesus says. That's what the whole New Testament says. We have it by faith. We don't yet have it by sight. But this life, in all of its supernatural fullness, is your destiny. That's why you're here. So that we can say that the Son's glorification, his, his, res, his, his risen glory, and His return to the Father's glory, that secures your glory. So two points by way of conclusion, briefly. The first one about this glory, and the second one I'm going to call consecration. Notice how the text moves. It moves from a prayer for glory to the giving of eternal life as a way to glorify the Father, back to glory consummated, shared glory before the world was. Enjoyed anew. 
It is not possible to be a Christian in the fullest sense that God intended for you to be a Christian if you are not preoccupied with the eternal glory that was shared between the Father and the Son. It's just simply not possible. You get something else. You get what I, call, what I have called God and me-ism. Where the me part is really big and the God part is really small. Jesus is trying to bring you back up into that glory. And so that this text does not stir a passion for the glory of the Holy Trinity, there are a few texts that could do it. And notice, this is not a retreat from the world. Right? This passion for this kind of glory embraces both prayer, worship, if you will, and mission, witness. Mission is right in the heart of this five-verse prayer. And so the text doesn't allow any separation at all between worship and witness, prayer and mission. They're both means of answering Jesus' prayer to be clothed in glory and to clothe the Father in glory. And so we move as a church. There's this kind of a rhythm, right, to to the church's life. We, We move from worship here, out to witness, back to worship, out to witness. And we can't have one without the other. Together they are how we glorify God. And enjoy him. So that's glory. Glory itself, the radiant splendor of the triune God, must become a much more pervasive thing deep into our souls and into our minds and into our lives. It's because it is for Paul that he prays for the church in Ephesians 3, in that grand prayer where he says, he prays that the church would be filled up To all the fullness of God. Second thing here is consecration. Just a note about what's happening here, right? Jesus has taught the disciples at length, not only for three years, but for the last three or four hours this evening, probably, something like that. But he's noticed, and we've seen, that teaching alone is not sufficient. There's a kind of lesson, by the way, here for teachers and parents, I think. Jesus mixes his fervent prayers with his teaching so that his teaching might be given power and made effective. Calvin goes so far as to say he mixes his prayers with the shedding of his blood so that together they can affect our salvation. So even though he speaks with high confidence, right? He speaks in the past tense. He's not presumptuous on the eve of the atonement. What is he doing? He's praying fervently. He's consecrating himself for our sake and he's placing himself on the altar of sacrifice even now. And so he doesn't think, Jesus does not think, you know, yesterday's prayers of consecration will meet today's crisis. There's no storing this stuff up that way. And so I think there's an example here for us. Don't just talk or teach, or cajole, or pray, you know, or rely on yesterday's graces. Pray. So we have to consecrate ourselves daily or hourly, because you know what? We have something on our forehead, too. We have two words. The work. The work that God has given us to do. What is the unique work in Christ that God has given you to do? 
What's stamped on your forehead that has to be finished when you lay down to die? We have a lot of options. But like the Lord, consecration always means separation for the sake of devotion to the thing we're called to. Of course, it's different for different people. It looks different. But we kind of know what it looks like for the church as a whole. It's worship and witness, teaching and prayer, personal consecration. It's from glory, through glory, unto glory that the saints are to carry on. Beautiful thing is like Jesus, we have to finish our course. Until, like the Father and the Son, indeed with the Father and Son, you too are covered over in splendor. Everlasting glory and splendor. Amen. Amen.